0: reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Starting on today's front page, the first headline reads, Lawmakers' Advance Gender Identity Bill. Opponents say Iowa's anti-trans legislation recalls segregation. By Tom Barr. Transgender and civil rights advocates and their allies packed a committee room and hallway for the second time in as many weeks to voice opposition to legislation they decried as unconstitutional and blatantly discriminatory. Activists stomped, shouted, and chanted profanities and trans rights are human rights outside a committee room Tuesday in vehement opposition to a proposal by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds that they said would erase transgender Iowans from state code. House Study Bill 649 would define man and woman in state law and require transgender Iowans to note both their pre- and post-transition genders on their driver's license. The bill was later amended by the House Education Committee to remove the driver's license requirement. Changes still would be required to be noted on a birth certificate. I can't see any other purpose than discrimination, said Representative Sharon Steckman, Democrat of Mason City, who voted against the bill. I'm appalled that the governor would put forth such a discriminatory bill, targeting 0.29% of our Iowa population, Steckman said. It is a sad day for Iowa. We're going backward. The House Education Committee voted Tuesday in a 15-8 to party line vote to advance the bill for debate and a vote by the full House. Democrats opposed the bill. House Democrats requested a public hearing on the bill to allow Iowans to voice their concerns about it before heading to a vote on the House floor. House Education Committee Chairman Skylar Wheeler, Republican of Hull, said House Republicans will work to accommodate the request. Reynolds, in a statement last week, called the legislation common sense and said it protects women's spaces and rights. She compared it to a state law passed in 2022 that prohibits transgender girls and women from competing in girls and women's athletics. Women and men are not identical, Reynolds' legislative liaison, Molly Severn, told lawmakers, echoing the governor. They possess unique biological differences. That's not controversial. It's common sense. It's unfortunate that that defining a woman in code has become necessary to protect spaces for women's health, safety, and privacy that are being threatened like domestic violence shelters and rape crisis centers. Stetman questioned whether domestic violence shelters in the state are experiencing problems accommodating cisgender and transgender women. Opponents note just as with school bathrooms and locker rooms Many institutions have shown it's possible to provide facilities that accommodate cisgender, people whose gender identity corresponds with their sex at birth, and transgender people. They say the bill's use of pro-segregation language should raise alarm. Reynolds' bill echoes language associated with the 1896 U.S. Supreme Court decision in the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, which declared segregation on the basis of race to be legal. The governor's bill says the term equal does not mean same or identical and that separate accommodations are not inherently unequal and maintain, and mentions prisons, domestic violence shelters, locker rooms, restrooms and rape crisis centers as places where people may need to be separated based on their sex assigned at birth. Here we are repeating not learning from history, said Connie Ryan, executive director of Interfaith Alliance of Iowa Action Fund. Separate but equal is never equal. Opponents, including the ACLU of Iowa, said the bill would have widespread, wide-ranging implications, including requiring changes to the way Iowa collects public health data and offers anti-discrimination protections. Transgender Iowans said the legislation, before it was amended, would require them to out themselves anywhere they have to present their ID. The Education Committee also voted to advance to the full house a bill that would prohibit schools from disciplining any teacher or student who refuses to use the student's preferred pronouns. The proposal, House File 2139, advanced on a 13 to 10 party line vote with two Republicans joining Democrats in opposition. The bill prohibits school districts and charter schools from taking disciplinary action against an employee, contractor, or student for not using the preferred names or pronouns of another employee, student, or contractor, if it differs from their legal name or what appears on school records. Supporters of the legislation say the proposal is needed to protect educators and students' freedom of speech and religion. Opponents say the legislation gives a green light for bullying. Democrats pointed out that last year, State House Republicans passed legislation that requires parents to notify educators about their approval of their child using a different name or pronoun and are now proposing legislation that would allow teachers to ignore that. University of Iowa settles baby delivery lawsuit for $2 million. State Paying Back Motorist Hit During Iowa State Police Chase by Vanessa Miller. The University of Iowa has agreed to pay a Johnson County family $2 million to settle a lawsuit involving accusations of negligence in the 2009 delivery of their son, who showed signs immediately of injury to his right arm and has failed to regain full mobility. Since the child, now 14 years old, was diagnosed as an infant with Erb's palsy, a muscle weakness of the arm or shoulder commonly caused by injury in childbirth, He's undergone 30 procedures over three surgeries spanning four years, according to a notice of the settlement put before the State Appeal Board for approval Tuesday. He's regained 50% mobility in his right arm and is on honor rolls and leads an active student life, including sports, according to the notice. But, based on expert opinion, significant standard of care and causation exposure existed for trial, which was set for April 2nd. Additionally, expert testimony existed on his diminished earning capacity, up to $2.6 million, and $615,000 for future needs, according to Deputy Attorney General Stan Thompson. Pain and suffering and loss of function were areas where a significant award could be made, Thompson wrote. Given a revised self-insurance agreement the state made with UI HealthCare in August, upped the amount UI physicians pay per claim from $5 million to $6 million, and the amount it pays per year from $9 million to $15 million. No amount of this settlement will come from the general fund, Thompson told the state board. The lawsuit, filed in October 2021, reported a complicated vaginal delivery at UIHC on December 5, 2009, involving shoulder dystocia when an infant's shoulder gets stuck. He subsequently went to the Mayo Clinic in April 2010 for remedial surgeries, and also received care at Texas Nerve and Paralysis Institute in Houston. The family accused UIHC of failing to exercise a standard degree of skill and care, failing to properly deliver a newborn, failing to diagnose his injury, failing to make a timely referral to a specialist, failing to train its employees, and failing to supervise and monitor its employees. The university denied the allegations and argued the infant's injuries could have been related to a pre-existing medical condition or subsequently occurring medical condition for which UIHC is not responsible. The university also argued the family's expert witnesses planned for trial weren't qualified to testify in the case and should be barred from providing testimony, thus ending the case in the university's favor. She will be unable to produce any competent evidence to show medical negligence according to the UIHC argument for summary judgment in its favor, a judgment it didn't receive before the two sides reached a settlement. The State Appeal Board on Tuesday also was asked to approve paying $5,744 to a motorist hit by a former Iowa State University police officer in October during a car chase the officer was advised not to join, according to a tort claim and administrative law judge decision. The uninvolved driver's vehicle was more than halfway through the intersection of Oakland Street and Highland Avenue in Ames when the former ISU officer, still involved in the multi-agency pursuit, failed to stop at a stop sign and hit the vehicle in the intersection. The officer hit the passenger rear corner of the other car with such force, the claimant's vehicle left the roadway and continued west until striking an apartment building, according to the claim. The state is paying for the 2006 Ford Windstar, which was valued at $3,225 and deemed a total loss, plus the $841 for towing and $1,678 needed to rent another car. ISU police did not yield to claimant who had legally entered the intersection and was over halfway through the intersection at the point of impact. The officer was subsequently fired and ordered to return $2,328 in unemployment benefits, she accrued. Local elections could become partisan under proposed bill. Lobbyist would inform low-information voters about candidates' beliefs by Caleb McCullough. Candidates for city and school board elections would appear on the ballot with party labels under a bill Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced out of a subcommittee on Tuesday. Supporters say the change would reflect the reality of the traditionally nonpartisan races, which have seen increased attention and money from local political parties and statewide partisan organizations in recent years. Specifically in the last election, I think we saw a lot of party-affiliated people get involved in a space that we've not seen them get involved in, said Representative Brooke Bowden, Republican of Indianola, who led the subcommittee meeting. And so when you begin down this pathway, we need to have a conversation. Is this the direction we're going? Bowden and Representative Dan Gelbach, Republican of Burbankdale, voted to advance the bill, House Study Bill 633, out of subcommittee. Democratic Representative Heather Mattson, Democrat of Ankeny, voted against it. The bill, which was proposed by House Education Subcommittee Chair Schuyler Wheeler of Hull, is now eligible for consideration in the full committee. Candidates for school and city elections currently run without any party label on the ballot. Still, local elections, especially for school boards, have become increasingly partisan in recent years, as disagreements over school curriculum, LGBTQ issues, and COVID-19 measures have brought increased attention onto the local boards. Groups such as One Iowa, Moms for Liberty, and The Family Leader got involved in school board races last year. Liberal candidates largely won over conservatives in that election's contested races. Under the bill, candidates for city and school board offices would be nominated via a primary election, and all other methods of nominating candidates for those offices would be removed. The primary election would be held on the first Tuesday in October, before the November election, when city and school offices are up for election. Candidates would need to gather between 10 and 100 signatures from voters, depending on the office, to appear on the primary ballot. The cost of conducting the primary election would be paid by the city or school district. Opponents of the bill said it would inject partisanship into offices that don't often deal with political issues. They also said it would be an unnecessary cost for school districts and cities, which often have uncontested races for open seats. Steve Richardson, an Indianola City Council member, told lawmakers during the subcommittee meeting He did not understand what problem the bill was intended to address. I understand in some of the previous elections here recently there's been some partisan activity from different groups and things like that, he said, but that's happened, frankly, for a long time and it's nothing new to the process. Lobbyists representing city and school board groups said smaller districts often have difficulty recruiting candidates to run for office. Requiring cities and school districts to conduct and pay for a separate primary election would add to those difficulties, they said. Some supporters of the bill said it would give voters more information about candidates in local races and allow them to make more informed decisions. They also said they believed it would increase turnout as voters would feel more confident in making decisions on who to support. Contractor Pleads to Scamming to Victims of Thousands by Trish Mahaffey. A contractor who scammed one elderly Cedar Rapids widow out of more than $4,000 to repair her roof damaged in the 2020 derecho, along with several others in the surrounding area pleaded last week in federal court scott gregory adkins 48 who did business as adkins home improvements llc was convicted of one count of wire fraud he faces up to 20 years in federal prison according to the plea agreement adkins admitted that he devised a scheme to defraud his customers including victims of the show from december 2020 through march 2022 Adkins organized his home improvement company in October 2020, about two months after the devastating storm. Adkins offered home repair services to victims of the derecho, as well as other individuals in the Cedar Rapids area who needed projects completed in the tight labor post-derecho construction market. Prosecutors said, as a part of his scheme, Adkins offered to provide construction services and materials to prospective customers. He provided estimates to those customers and demanded substantial deposits or down payments before starting the projects. Instead of completing the projects, Adkins spent some of the funds on personal expenses, including food, and transferred some of the money to a family member through a mobile payment service. Adkins also made false statements and excuses to his customers about the status of their projects to conceal his illicit use of the funds and to lull his customers into a false sense of security, prosecutors said. Adkins stole more than $177,000 from 19, Doratio, and other victims in the scams, including taking more than $4,000 as a down payment from the elderly Cedar Rapids widow who needed her roof repaired. After Adkins received a check from the widow, he deposited it and never did the work. He also wrote a worthless check from more than $11,400 to a Cedar Rapids home improvement store on, in July 2021 Knowing the check wasn't valued and acted with intent intent to defraud, the police stated. Adkins also made false statements to the home improvement store to cover up his crime, including blaming a homeowner for not paying him. U.S. District Chief Judge Leonard Strand will sentence Adkins after a pre sentencing report is completed. He faces up to 20 years in prison, a $250,000 fine, and three years of supervised release following any prison term. The case is being prosecuted by Assistant U.S. Attorney Timothy Baberchek and was investigated by the FBI and the Cedar Rapids Police Department. Lawmakers advance restrictions on porn sites and social media by Aaron Murphy. Online pornography sites would require age verification and parental consent would be required for a minor to create a social media account in the state under proposals advancing in the Iowa legislature. The proposed bills take different approaches at achieving a similar goal. To protect Iowa children from pornography and other online content that proponents believe to be objectionable or harmful. Protecting children from harm is a primary duty that parents have. And the state of Iowa also has a vested interest in doing that as well. Yet, in this day and age, the devices that children use on a daily basis have let it be available. Hardcore pornography content, videos, and pictures that harm the minds of those minors. Cheryl Elsloo with the Pella-based advocacy group Protect My Innocence said during the public comment period of a legislative hearing on one of the proposals Tuesday at the Iowa Capitol. Under one bill, parental consent would be required for anyone in Iowa under the age of 18 to create a social media account. That bill is scheduled for its first legislative hearing today. The other bill, which was featured in a Tuesday subcommittee hearing, is destined for some changes, according to its manager. Originally, that bill would have required the activation of a filter, whenever a minor in Iowa activated a phone or created an account on a phone. But the bill is being reworked after phone manufacturers said such a law would be infeasible because manufacturers do not delineate to which state's phones are shipped. Lobbyists for mobile companies Apple and T-Mobile spoke at the legislative hearing and, in addition to noting the logistical, logistical hurdles, pointed out that there are already options on devices, websites, and applications for parents to restrict content from their children. Representative John Wills, a Republican from Spirit Lake, said that in the process of running the bill, he learned more about how phones are manufactured and sold. Because of that, Wills said, he plans to change the proposal to focus on an age verification requirement for pornography sites, plus an education campaign that teaches parents and children how to create safeguards on phones. The proposal to require parental consent for a minor to create a social media account, House File 2255 is scheduled for consideration in a subcommittee hearing today. It also is running through the House Judiciary Committee. Representative Charlie Thompson, a Republican from Charles City, said his proposal attempts to help parents protect their children from the dangers of social media for young people. Iowa's rising cancer rate spurs legislative bills. Bills include new insurance rules, appropriations, and radon requirements. By Brittany Miller. Iowa legislators on both sides of the aisle are proposing bills aimed at cancer prevention in the state, largely motivated by last year's Cancer in Iowa report that revealed Iowa's second highest and rising cancer incidence rate in the nation. Representatives Austin Baith, Democrat of Des Moines, and Hans Welts, Republican of Ottumwa, met at the Capitol when they sat next to each other during last year's legislative session. Baith, a practicing doctor, brought up his concerns about Iowa's cancer rates. Wiltz was impassioned to work together to codify cancer prevention, regardless of their partisan divide. Everybody's affected by cancer. It's something that's costing us life, Wiltz said. How do we take a holistic approach to finding solutions and preventative measures? As of last year's Cancer in Iowa report, Iowa ranks only behind Kentucky for its cancer incidence rate. It is the only state in the nation with a rising rate of cancer. This year's soon-to-be-released report follows those trends, Bates said. Their bills are inspired by the Iowa Cancer Plan, a blueprint for reducing the burden of cancer in the state, as penned by members of the nonprofit Iowa Cancer Consortium. The Iowa Cancer Plan, recent, recently revised for 2023 to 27, includes policy recommendations around areas such as health equity, risk reduction, and early detection. Several target the usual suspects or the known factors attributed to Iowa's cancer rates, Bates said. Those include smoking, radon exposure, and obesity. Those are known causes of cancer, and we have evidence-based ways that we can mitigate them, he said. By going after those known causes of cancer themselves, we hope to be able to reduce Iowa's cancer rate. So far, the pair have proposed House File 2169, which would restrict minors from using tanning beds and enact penalties for violations. Tanning beds expose users to ultraviolet radiation that can cause skin cancer. A subcommittee advanced the bill. House File 2170, which would require new single-family or two-family residential construction to incorporate radon mitigation methods. Radon is a naturally occurring radioactive gas that can cause lung cancer. All of Iowa is considered at high risk for radon gas in homes, a subcommittee recommended passage. House File 2183, which would expand medical benefits to cover a broader range of cancers for retired members of municipal fire and police systems a subcommittee unanimously recommended passage. House File 2282, which would appropriate $300,000 to the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services to support radon awareness, education, and outreach efforts. At least $20,000 must be used to provide free home radon testing kits. House File 2283, which would appropriate $900,000 to the department to develop a plan for reducing Iowa's obesity rate. Obesity is linked to a higher risk of getting cancer. The Department must submit the plan, including policy and intervention recommendations, to the Legislature by September 1, 2025. House File 2341, which would increase the state's cigarette tax from 6 and 8 tenths per cigarette to 10 cents per cigarette. That would bring the taxes on a 20-piece pack of cigarettes from $1.36 to $2. Beginning July 1, the revenue from the tax would be appropriated to the Iowa Health and Human Services or Cancer Research and Prevention. Additionally, Wills proposed House File 2339, which would appropriate $2 million from the Health Department's General Fund to conduct a review of state cancer surveillance data. That review, conducted by the Department and the Iowa Cancer Consortium, would be submitted to the legislature by September 1, 2025. The groups would investigate the causes of Iowa's rising cancer rates and recommend action steps to, to guide prevention. The $2 million also would help staff an employee fully dedicated to Iowa's cancer control program. I hear back from a lot of Iowans who are concerned about the unknown, about what might be causing this alarming cancer crisis, Faith told the Gazette. Before we jump to conclusions, I think it's really important that we invest in doing solid solid scientific research for us to confidently identify what those potential culprits are. Both Bates and and Wiltz say they're focused on building awareness either through talking with legislative leadership or creating viral social media videos explaining the state's cancer rates. Cedar Rapids man's confession can be used in attempted murder trial. Anthony DePolis argued he didn't have the mental capacity to waive his rights by Trish Mahaffey. A judge has ruled that a Cedar Rapids man charged with trying to kill his ex-wife voluntarily waived his rights and provided details of what happened that, July 20 in July 2020, including his confession of the stabbing. Anthony M. DePolis, 34, asked the court to keep his statements to police during an in- interrogation out of his trial, saying he didn't have the mental capacity to waive rights. DePolis is charged with attempted murder, willful injury, and assault while displaying a dangerous weapon, domestic abuse. He is accused of stabbing his ex-wife, Diana L. DePolis, 37, multiple times on July 6, 2020. A psychologist testified last month that Anthony DePolis, who had a history of mental health issues, depression and anxiety, and on the schizophrenia spectrum, hadn't taken prescribed medications in the days before the stabbing and had been smoking marijuana, which he did daily. Lindsay Dees, a forensic evaluator, said DePolis also had no memory of the police interrogation, saying he felt detached from his body and felt like he was underwater during the questioning. Cedar Rapids Police Investigator Randy Jernigan testified that he read DePolis's rights before he started asking questions, and DePolis agreed to talk with him and another investigator. He understood the questions and gave appropriate responses, he said. 6th Judicial District Judge Ian Thornhill, in his ruling, said DePolis, During the interrogation was advised that any possible statements could be used against him, and he verbally confirmed he understood his rights. He freely provided details of the stabbing, often in narrative form, to the investigators, the judge said. DePolis didn't appear confused or upset, but he instead seemed to want investigators to understand his side of the story, including the history of events leading up to his actions that day, Thornhill said in the ruling. Thornhill said he considered the psychologist's opinion, but it didn't negate other circumstances surrounding the waiver and interview, including DePolis' words and actions that were clear and logical and the judge's own observations. Thornhill also found DePolis' statements to police after waiving his rights were the produce of an essentially free and unconstrained choice made by defendant at a time when his will was not overborne nor his capacity for self-determination critically impaired. No new trial date has yet been reset for DePolis. Fetch $5 for each raccoon tail under this proposed bill. House panel advances bill after Democrats call it fiscally irresponsible. By Brittany Miller. A bill proposed by an Iowa representative would establish a raccoon bounty program where the state would shell out $5 per raccoon tail turned into the Department of Iowa, uh, Iowa Department of Natural Resources. In 2006, the Iowa DNR reported 2,417 raccoons in its Spring Spotlight Survey, which counts wildlife along rural roads in all Iowa counties. In 2023, it counted 5,526, a surge of nearly 130% and the fifth year in a row of relatively high population sizes. State residents, including wildlife control specialists and the lawmaker himself, label them as pests of crops, farm equipment, and homes. Between 2021 and 2022, the statewide harvest for raccoons was 34,529, the lowest harvest since 1958, according to the Iowa DNR. Representative Dean Fisher, Republican of Montour, who chairs the House's Environmental Protection Committee, introduced the bill for the Raccoon Bounty Program, House Study Bill 636, in hopes of spurring more take of the species. Population is going up because we're just not harvesting enough, he said, in a Tuesday subcommittee hearing surrounding his legislation. That's the impetus behind this bill. In the 2022 session, he proposed legislation that would allow people to kill certain animals, including raccoons, without permission for nuisance control. That bill passed the Senate but was ultimately stalled. A 2023 attempt at a similar rule was eventually signed into law. Under Fisher's new proposed rule, the Iowa DNR would establish and administer the raccoon bounty program. Participants would be able to redeem a $5 voucher for each raccoon tail they turned in at a monthly raccoon tail pickup event in each county. The Iowa DNR would be appropriated $0.50 for each raccoon tail relinquished. The bounty rewards would come from a new fund in the state treasury, which Fisher proposed would be filled by a state appropriation of an unknown amount. He also suggested the fund could be filled by donations and gifts from organizations such as Pheasants Forever or Ducks Unlimited, which could be motivated to protect bird eggs from raccoon depredation. The bill would require participants to check their traps every 24 hours, and licensed fur dealers would not be able to participate. The bill also would create a maximum fur dealer license fee of $50. We'll end our first half with some short items from the Capital Notebook section. Stronger interlock rules proposed to address OWI. Also a proposal to eliminate gender balance on state boards advances by the Gazette-Lee Des Moines Bureau. Lawmakers advanced a bill aimed at improving Iowa's ignition interlock law by requiring those convicted of drunken driving to complete the designated time period without violations before the device can be removed and their license reinstated. The bill is supported by AAA, the National Safety Council, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, Students Against Destructive Decisions, and other traffic safety groups. The groups, in a letter to lawmakers, said the legislation is critical to reducing impaired driving in Iowa. They note 118 people died in drunken driving crashes in Iowa in 2021, accounting for about one-third of all traffic deaths in the state. Supporters pointed to studies that suggest ignition interlock devices reduce recidivism by up to 70% among all offenders while being used house study bill 618 protects people on the roadways while still allowing drivers with alcohol related convictions to responsibly continue driving and meeting family and work obligations the letter states bill would cut funding levels if no budget passed iowa lawmakers advanced a bill that would allow lawmakers to end the legislative session without passing a budget under the proposed bill house file 2020. Any agencies or programs that do not get funded by state lawmakers through the regular budget process at the time the legislature adjourns for the year would automatically receive the same amount of money they received during the last fiscal year, reduced by half a percent. The bill could address issues where leaders in the Senate, House, and the Governor's Office reach an impasse on negotiating a budget for the upcoming year. In 2020, lawmakers passed a state budget just days before the new fiscal year started on July 1st after the COVID-19 pandemic disrupted operations at the Capitol. Lawmakers moved to restrict AI in elections. A bill aimed at restraining the use of artificial intelligence in Iowa elections advanced out of a subcommittee Tuesday. The bill, House Study Bill 599, would require materials made with artificial intelligence that are intended to advocate for or against a candidate for office in the state to have a statement attached that acknowledges it was created using artificial intelligence a bill that would remove the requirement for Iowa's boards and commissions to have an equal number of men and women, advanced Tuesday out of a Senate committee. The bill would overturn a set of laws dating to 1987 that require a gender balance on state boards and commissions. The laws originally were passed to address a lack of women appointed to the boards. Supporters, say Senate File 2096 say that, supporters of Senate File 2096 say the gender balance requirements on Iowa's boards are unnecessary as women have made advances in Iowa. But opponents say the existing law has helped to empower women in Iowa and removes barriers to leadership. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 7, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Reverend Larry Richard Johnson, 88, of Iowa City, was born in Hillsborough, North Dakota, on September 8, 1935, to Alfred and Irene Shaver Johnson. He went to be with his heavenly father on January 19, 2024, surrounded by his family. Burial arrangements were provided by Gay and Chia Funeral Home. Visitation will be March second at 9.30 a.m., followed by the memorial service at 11 a.m. at Creekside Bible Church in Marion, held by his daughters. For a complete obituary or to share a condolence, please go to Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website at gayandchia.com. Donald Buster Ray Pate, 63 of Hiawatha, died Tuesday, January 30th at his home. Visitation will be held at 11 a.m., followed by services at 12 noon, Saturday, February 10th at T.N. Funeral Home. Burial will be at Dunkard Cemetery. Donald Ray Pate was born on March 30th, 1960, son of Paul Devon and Velma Marie McConnell Pate in Cedar Rapids. He graduated from Kennedy High School in 1979. On April 22, 1988, he was united in marriage to Lori King. Buster began working construction for his dad in high school and continued until 1989, when he started Pate's Construction, retiring in 2015 due to his health. Buster lived by the motto, Work Hard, Play Hard. Buster was involved in many motorsports, including dirt bikes, mud racing, dirt stock car racing, and has even participated in a few demolition derbies along the way. Along with motorsports, Buster was a high school wrestler and after graduating became a champion arm wrestler, winning many trophies. Buster's love of motorcycles was above all. He loved nothing more than riding. He was able to purchase his dream bike and eventually made it to Sturgis in 2021 with some very close friends. Memorials may be directed to definitely dogs in Don's name. Online condolences can be left at TNFuneralHome.com. Alice Jean Hoffmeyer, 88, of Cedar Rapids, died on Sunday, February 4th. Services, 10.30 a.m. Thursday at Bethany Lutheran Church by Rev. Ted Groth. Burial, 2.30 p.m. Thursday at Loudoun Cemetery in Loudoun. F- friends may visit with the family on Wednesday from 4 to 7 p.m. at TN Funeral Home. Alice was born and raised on a farm near Manning on August 28, 1935, the daughter of Hugo and Eunice Grau Aronson. She graduated from Manning High School in 1954 and continued her education with a B.A. in Music from Buena Vista University in Storm Lake. She also earned a Master of Arts degree from the University of Iowa in 1962. Alice's teaching career included two years of instructing vocal music in Mapleton and later teaching music and math at Johnson Elementary School in Cedar Rapids and countless hours of substitute teaching. Alice married Norvin Hoffmeyer on June 9, 1963, at Zion Lutheran Church in Manning. She was an active member of Trinity Lutheran Church, and her involvement extended to leadership roles. Alice was a member of the Beethoven Club, Washington Athletic Club Board, Patrons of Performing Arts Board, and was the only person to be inducted into both the Washington Athletic Club Hall of Fame and the Patrons of the Performing Arts Hall of Fame in 1994. She was also a member of the Cedar Rapids Symphony Guild. She volunteered her time and talents by playing piano at Sunday services for many years at Hiawatha Care Center and taught hundreds of piano lessons. Memorials may be directed to Trinity Lutheran Church and Camp Iodisica in her memory. Online condolences can be left at TNFuneralHome.com. Daryl Harper, age 67, of Cedar Rapids, passed away at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital on Wednesday, January 31st, surrounded by his loving family a celebration of life will be held at the cedar memorial park funeral home on monday february twelfth, from 12 noon until service time at 1 p m with st croix hospice chaplain gordon lewis presiding darrell was born on december 2 1956 in chicago he was the son of the late eddie and lillian davis harper darrell was a veteran in the u s army and enjoyed his job at parker Hannifin corporation until his retirement darrell liked having everything in his life to be clean and pristine He loved watching the Chicago Bulls basketball team and was always there to give a life lesson if necessary. Memorial contributions may be directed to the family. William David Wright, Bill, 88, of Des Moines, died at home after a long, wonderful life. He was born on August 11, 1935, in Des Moines, to Dr. Doyce and Viva Wright. Bill grew up in Adel. Bill and his wife, Joan, lived in Marion for many years and then moved to Swisher in 1979. They operated right appliance service out of their home for nearly 30 years. In 2017, Bill and Joan moved to the addition they had built onto their daughter's home in Des Moines. Bill's lifelong passion was to share the good news of Jesus' salvation with others. Funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 10th at Maranatha Baptist Church in Grimes, with visitation beginning at 10 a.m. Burial will take place in the Oakdale Cemetery in Adel. Condolences may be expressed at CaldwellParish.com. Frederick Feevold, 64, of Coralville, passed away on February 5th. Funeral services will be held at 2 p.m. Saturday, February 10th at Our Savior's Lutheran Church in Humboldt. Visitation is prior to the service beginning at 1 p.m. A celebration of life will take place beginning at 1 p.m. on Saturday, February 17th at Back Pocket Brewery in Coralville. Fred was born on November 10th, 1959, in Morris, Minnesota, to Lowell and Phyllis on and Feevold. Following graduation from Humboldt High School, Fred attended the University of Iowa. Fred had an expansive career at University of Iowa Hospital. He became a friendly and familiar face throughout the hospital during his years working in chart control. He later helped launch the Work Injury Recovery Center where he worked until his retirement after 35 years of service. Fred and Bernie met during Fred's chart control days at work. In the summer of 2012, they reconnected at a mutual friend's birthday party and have been by each other's side since. They bonded over Hawkeye football and being social butterflies. In lieu of flowers, please consider donating blood in Fred's honor or a contribution to the Fred Feebold Memorial Scholarship Fund, which will support students making a return to their studies after time away from school. Please direct contributions to the University of Iowa Center for Advancement with gift in memory of Fred Feebold in the memo line. Sylvester Edward Fritz, 92, of Brighton, passed away peacefully at his home on February 4th. He was born on the family farm near Brighton to Michael and Michael Edward and Gertrude Elizabeth Arndt Fritz on December 4th, 1931. He graduated from Brighton High School in 1950. After serving in the U.S. Marine Corps, he both farmed and worked at Iowa Malleable and Iron Company in Fairfield. On April 25th, 1959, he married Janet Strabala and moved to their farm south of Brighton. Sylvester and Janet were married 63 years when she died in 2023. A funeral mass will be held at 10 a.m. on Saturday, February 10th at St. Joseph Catholic Church in East Pleasant Plain with Reverend Robert Lathrop officiating. Burial will follow at St. Joseph Cemetery. A rosary will be held at 3.30 p.m. on Friday, February 9th at the church, followed with visitation until 7 p.m. In lieu of flowers, the family invites you to make a donation to St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery or to the Brighton Volunteer Firefighters Association in Sylvester's honor. Gould Funeral Home of Brighton is in charge of arrangements. That concludes today's obituaries. Moving to the editorial page, there is one letter to the editor today. It is from Sonia Ettinger of Iowa City. The headline reads, "Object and Principles Should Examine Relevant Questions. Recently, the writers of Iowa House Study Bill 587 proposed that students should study the object and principles of the government of the United States, in grades one through 12. A high school discussion of government might presumably examine the question of what is expected of a president. In order to honor and respect a president, as suggested, might students look at whether a candidate values truth and honesty in his, her speeches and actions? Might candidates be expected to listen to various citizen opinions without denigrating those with different views? Might candidates surround themselves with cabinet members who are competent and caring for their constituents and for the country? Might candidates value the laws of this country, which include the right to of all to vote and to abide by the vote, and also to value the laws and norms of the global community? Might these students be concerned about government by a president and an administration that devalues bipartisan laws that were enacted for the health and welfare of the whole multi-ethnic populace? This country was occupied by many people who predated the influx of white Europeans, Native Americans, Caribbean Islanders, and Spanish Mexicans, to name a few. Might these students wonder about whether a president seemed concerned about the health of our land and our water and air? In 2024, these are very relevant questions for students and for all who care about our future. And that letter is from Sonia Ettinger of Iowa City, published in Today's Gazette. Here is a guest column by Bruce Lear. It's titled Closing the Gap that Divides Us. A few days after we dug out from the last snowstorm, we headed south we bought a small place in Florida for the few unbearable Iowa winter months. So we've been meeting new people and getting acquainted. Happy hour every day at 4.15 p.m. has us finding out what we have in common with other Yankees yearning for sun. We have quite a bit in common with the people we've met. They may be from different political parties, social backgrounds, and different parts of the country, but there's commonality. I started thinking about why America is divided and seems lacking in a common identity and purpose. It's too easy to shrug and blame the other political party. There are many factors contributing to this divide, but two, va- two factors are the demise of local newspapers and the explosion of social media. It took years for this divide to become dangerous. Now is the time to build bridges instead of walls. It's not a secret that many local newspapers across the country and in Iowa are, in ho- are on hospice care. Philip Graham, publisher of the Washington Post, said journalism is the first draft of history. We're losing first drafts along with common history and identity. For example, the Jessup Citizen Herald recently died after printing for 122 years. But small town newspapers aren't the only casualties. In May of 2023, Lee Enterprises announced the Sioux City Journal, Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier, Mason City Globe Gazette, and Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil would provide print editions only three days a week. Why does this matter? Yes, print editions may die. But no matter how well done online publications are in covering local news, shrinking newspapers are shedding journalists and coverage. Those left are doing double duties. Local TV news is available, but the local news must compete with national headlines and commercials crammed into 30 second sound bites for 30 minutes. Many choose TV news outlets that mirror their beliefs. If you're conservative, you watch Fox or One America. If you're liberal, you, rel- you relish MSNBC. We've traded objective news coverage for news that makes us comfortable instead of informed. Not having ready access to local news hurts in developing a common town culture, and it prevents people from understanding each other within the community. Through social media, it's now possible to find long-lost friends and connect, but that connection is often superficial. Social media also isolates us. It allows groupthink without being face-to-face within a group. Because we can tailor content to our own beliefs, it reinforces those beliefs, and we never encounter disagreement if we choose not to. This results in never listening to the other side or critically thinking about our own position. The only way this divide will be mended is through conversation and by finding a common American identity. We can narrow the divide if we recognize what we all have in common. Bruce Lear lives in Sioux City, taught in public schools for 11 years, and represented educators as an Iowa State Education Association Regional Director for 27 years, until retiring. Moving on to sports, here's today's article about Iowa football. It's titled, Aggressive in Everything. Lester carries schematic flexibility as he begins tenure as Hawkeyes Offensive Coordinator, by John Stepp. Tim Lester was quick to address what everybody wants to know in his introductory news conference, what Iowa is going to be about as an offense in 2024 and beyond. We're going to be a physical football team, Iowa's new offensive coordinator said Tuesday. We're going to be disciplined and we're going to be aggressive in everything we do, from run game to pass game to keepers to RPOs to tempos. Beyond that, what Iowa's offense will look like schematically under Lester's leadership remains flexible as he further acclimates himself to the Hawkeyes. Part of Tim's job is going to be to figure out what do we want to emphasize, head coach Kirk Ferentz said. You can only practice so many things and emphasize so many things and do them well. I'm open to anything right now, any ideas. Lester has some schematic flexibility after working in various offensive schemes. He ran the, Sh- the Shanahan system at the Division three level, took over a spread offense at Syracuse that didn't even have a tight end, and worked in an offensive scheme at Purdue that was more comparable to the New Orleans Saints offense. There's a lot to choose from, Lester said, and I hate to keep going back to this, but I can't wait to see what we have. What gets called will be dependent on what, kind- what we see in spring in the spring, and what we are what we see as guys move around here in the next couple months. RPO, that's short for run pass option, was certainly not a hallmark of the Iowa offense in recent years, but it's something Lester has effectively incorporated in his coaching career and something Lester brought up unprompted about 30 seconds into his opening remarks. It's not something we haven't ever considered or we're blind to, Ferret said of RPOs putting together the playbook will take some time lester said he remains in the relationship building stage with his players after being named offensive coordinator last week i have a saying rbo relationship before opportunity lester said i'll have a great opportunity to coach these young men once i have a relationship with them as much as lester is in wait and see mode before making too many proclamations of what the iowa offense will look like schematically early signs point toward lester operating with a similar philosophy regarding tight end usage and mobile quarterbacks value lester considers himself to be a twelve guy referencing the personnel grouping with one running back and two tight ends that is in alignment with what iowa the self-proclaimed tight end u has done in past years i love tight ends lester said i'm a huge fan everywhere i've been our tight end has been all conference normally Some people use them, some people don't. I love the fact of what they can do to a defense in the run game, in the pass game, in the play pass game, in the keeper game. It can also open up things out on the edges, too. Lester described mobile quarterbacks as icing on the cake, if you have it, but it is not a a prerequisite for the QB1 role. I value efficiency at the quarterback position, Lester said. Mobility would be a bonus. If I can get both, 100% I'm all for it. Who doesn't want that, right? but there has to be efficiency first. Not everything will be the same, though, as hinted by Lester's early mention of RPOs. A smaller difference between Lester and his predecessor will be where they are on game days. Brian Ferentz coached from the sidelines during games, whereas Lester prefers being in the press box. As for other changes to the Iowa offense, time will tell as Lester focuses on RBO, relationship before opportunity, ahead of figuring out RPOs and other schematic tasks. We've got to figure out what kind of Kind of what we've got and what's the best way for us to be efficient, aggressive, run the ball, and help the team win, Lester said. Hockey. Corridor cross-checks. Hayne giving a boost to ECHL's Iowa Heartlanders. Former NHL draft pick has spent most of the season with Iowa Wild by Jeff Johnson. He might not be around long, so enjoy him while he's here. That's Gavin Hain, who was assigned last week to the Iowa Heartlanders after spending most of this hockey season in the American Hockey League with the Iowa Wild. Hein is a 23-year-old forward from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Excuse me, and the University of North Dakota, who originally was a sixth-round NHL draft pick of the Philadelphia Flyers in 2018. He did not sign with the club after his final college season last year and became a free agent. The Heartlanders signed him to an ECHL contract in September, but the Wild liked him enough to sign him to a pair of PTOs, professional tryout contracts, that have kept him in Des Moines. Hain played 21 games in the AHL, scoring a pair of goals and accumulating three points. He played one game earlier this season between PTOs for the Heartlanders and played a pair of games last weekend, scoring a goal and having a plus-minus rating of plus three. When I spoke to his agent in the summer and I watched video of him, I knew right away this guy would be a really good player for us if we could get him, said Heartlanders coach Derek Damon. I can see why he was drafted. He just plays such a hard game. Kind of reminds me with the way he plays of Matthew Taychuk of the NHL's Florida Panthers. He plays a hard game, is hard on the forecheck, is physical, is strong on stick, he's a pro, and I think he has the capability to be a really good professional. Will he be with us long term? It's hard to say. Hain played junior hockey briefly for Sioux Falls of the United States Hockey League, then spent a full season with the United States National Team Development Program before playing five seasons for North Dakota. He overcame a knee injury that knocked him out of the majority of the 2021-22 season. Damon is effusive in his praise of him. Ultimately, one day, you hope he gets an opportunity in the NHL, Damon said, because he takes care of himself. He's a really good kid. He's a pro's pro. Just the way he takes care of himself, the way he plays the game, and he's got some skill, too. Iowa won a pair of games last weekend at Kalamazoo, running its win streak to three overall. It won last Friday night's game 2-1 on Yuki Miura's goal with less than two minutes to go in regulation, with Casey Dornbach's overtime goal winning the next night's game 3-2. Drew DeRitter was named the ECHL Goaltender of the Week, picking up the win both nights and making 59 saves in them. The Heartlanders are 18-19-4-1 for 42 standings points, seventh and last in the Central Division, but just two points back of sixth-place Cincinnati three behind fifth place Kalamazoo and six behind Indy for fourth place and the final available playoff spot in the division. Iowa hosts Kalamazoo at 6.35 tonight at Extreme Arena. Cincinnati comes to town for games Friday night at 6.35 and Saturday night at 6.05. The Heartlanders have played 26 road games so far this season and just 17 at home. You have to be mindful that it's just one game at a time. We still have 29 games left, Damon said. The next six games are against divisional opponents, then we play Wichita for a one-off. The next six games are crucial. It's nice to be home. The guys have earned it. We're in the mix. The thick of it. And here's some news about the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders. 14-19, 4-2, 34 points, three behind Chicago for sixth. Not the weekend the Rough Riders needed, as they dropped a pair of games at Youngstown, 6-1 and 5-3. Ryan O'Connell had CR's lone goal in the Friday night game. Defensemen scored all three goals Saturday night. Elliot Gronwald with one and Eric Cald with two. Cald's second goal tied the game in the, at the 9:33 mark of the third period, but Youngstown's Grant Young scored 101 later and then had an empty netter. Cedar Rapids continued employing three goaltenders, with James Norton playing Friday night and Rudy Guimond and Sam Scopa splitting Saturday's game. The Rough Riders are 14-19-4-2 overall for 34 standings points. That places them in seventh place out of eight teams in the United States Hockey League's Eastern Conference, three points behind Chicago for sixth place, and the final available playoff spot in the division. Riders head coach Mark Carlson remains four wins shy of the all-time coaching victories mark in the USHL. Cedar Rapids plays Friday night at Dubuque and hosts Chicago at 7.05 Saturday night at I'm on Ice Arena. Here's a list of today's games. Men's basketball. Missouri State at UNI, 7 p.m., Luther at Coe, 7.30 p.m., Ripon at Cornell, 5.30 p.m., Clark at Mount Mercy, 7.30 p.m., Kirkwood at Iowa Lakes, 7.30 p.m., Women's basketball. Luther at Coe, 5.30 p.m., Clark at Mount Mercy, 5.30 p.m., Ripon at Cornell, 7.30 p.m., Kirkwood at Iowa Lakes, 5.30 p.m. Pro Hockey, Kalamazoo at the Iowa Heartlanders at 6.35 p.m. Here are some of the games on television. In the NBA, Warriors at 76ers at 6.30 on ESPN. Pelicans at Clippers, 9 p.m. on ESPN. NHL, Lightning at Rangers, 6 p.m. on TNT. Wild at Blackhawks, 8.30 p.m. on NBCS Chicago and TNT. Men's Basketball, Wisconsin at Michigan, 6 p.m. on BTN. Alabama at Auburn, 6 p.m. on ESPN2. Pittsburgh at North Carolina State, 6 p.m. on ESPNU. Villanova at Xavier, 6 p.m. on FS1. Portland at Gonzaga, 7 p.m. CBS Sports Network. Nebraska at Northwestern, 8 p.m. on BTN. Texas A&M at Missouri, 8 p.m. on ESPN2. Florida Gulf Coast at Eastern Kentucky, 8 p.m. on ESPNU. Women's Basketball, Georgetown at Marquette, 8 p.m. on FS1. Pro Golf, Commercial Bank, Cotter Masters, at 3 a.m. Thursday on the Golf Channel. Robbins' Man Reaches 1,000 Mark for Donating Blood, Has Donated Blood Over the Last 40 Years, by Trish Mahaffey. A Robbins' Man Reached His 1,000th Donation for Platelets this week at Impact Life. That's the most donations anyone has made in the Cedar Rapids area and also the four-state region Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, and Wisconsin that the blood center serves. The Impact Life staff had a small celebration at the East Donor Center at Lindale Crossing 4828 First Avenue Northeast on Monday to mark the 1000 donation which is the equivalent of 125 gallons of blood that Pete Bischoff, 77, has donated over the years. Bischoff received a large balloon and other gifts to commemorate the day. Bischoff said he initially started giving blood while in the US Army stationed in Stuttgart, Germany. On Thanksgiving Day 1966, servicemen were asked to give blood, and he and about five others volunteered. In return, they received a three-day pass, $50 savings bond, and the rest of the day off, so I thought that was a pretty good deal, Bischoff said. He donated a few more times after that, but then didn't donate again again after returning home until the mid-1970s. When St. Luke's Blood Center received a platelets machine, they asked him to donate platelets. A few years later, Mercy Medical Center received a machine, and a friend of his that worked for the blood bank asked him to donate to them. Bischoff continues to donate to the Regional Area Blood Center, which became Impact Life in 2021, where he now donates platelets every other week. Platelets are cells in the blood that form clots and stop or prevent bleeding. Some people can develop a condition called thrombocytopenia, where they have low platelet count due to cancer or other underlying causes and need a transfusion. Platelets also are used in open-heart surgery, organ and bone marrow transplants, and traumas. Kirby Wynn, Impact Life public relations manager, said Impact Life has an active donor base of about 580 platelet donors in Cedar Rapids. By active, he means there are 580 people who have donated platelets at the two donor centers in Cedar Rapids over the last two years. Impact Life Service Region has nearly 6,000 active platelet donors, but Bischoff has the highest total number of donations of the current active platelet donor base. We appreciate Pete for his long-term commitment to supporting the community as a platelet donor, Wynn said. Bischoff said, you have to be in pretty good health to donate platelets. I watch my weight. It also helps that I have O- negative blood type, universal blood type, which can be used in transfusions for any blood type. Bischoff said the center tests the hemoglobin, which must be a certain level before you were able to donate platelets. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.